Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, everybody. Happy Super Bowl Sunday to you. Um, we're going to do uh, something we have not done in a couple of years because we have uh, the oracle, the single greatest uh, prognosticator since the prophet Isaiah, um, has been in retirement, but, th- but today he is coming out of retirement. The oracle is, is me. And um, I, for whatever reason, dumb luck is a big part of it, I know. Um, I have been un- uncommonly lucky with my, my picks. Uh, and so I did go into retirement after picking the winner and the point spread exactly two years ago. Uh, and so after a year, just kind of taking a rest, kind of like Tom Brady's probably about to do, take a year off and then come back and, and win another Super Bowl. Uh, I believe that today, um, despite the fact that everybody wants and believes that the Rams are going to get it done, I actually think the Bengals win by six. So there we go. Bengals by six. You heard it here. And, uh, and, and uh, so I, I will answer for it one way or the other. So I'll make you a deal. If, if it doesn't go my way, I will answer for it. And, and if you bet against me and you lose, you better be here to answer for it. All right. Uh, so that we can hold each other accountable and have some fun this afternoon. All right. Uh, we're in Romans for the next eight weeks. All right. And we're going to look at uh, Romans chapters one through eight. And when you read Romans, what you're reading is really what most theologians would say is the great magnum opus of Christian theology. Uh, that's a fancy way of saying it is the great uh, reflection of the Apostle Paul on what it means that God reconciled the world to himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to know what Christians believe, you can certainly go to the Gospels. In Matthew, Jesus is the great teacher. The red letters uh, are there, all the Sermon on the Mount, the, all the great teachings of Jesus are in Matthew and Mark. He's this humble, powerful, suffering servant, and he's doing everything really quickly Everything's always, uh, immediately Jesus went and did this, and then immediately he went and did this. In Luke, he's the great storyteller. You get a lot of the parables there. Prayer is a big theme. Um, a lot of Holy Spirit in Luke. And so Luke is a great place to turn. In John, you get all the I am sayings. I am the bread of life. Um, you know, I, and, he, and he gives a lot of uh, I came so that statements, and that helps you get a lot of his purpose. But you're still seeing Jesus in his earthly ministry. You're not seeing uh, kind of the, the eternal implications of what it means that he's always been, that he always will be, and who he was before that time where he emptied himself and entered human flesh and came and dwelt among us, the before and then the after. And then the other part that gets conspicuously left out there is why his presence on earth was, was necessary, why, uh, why in fact, in you know, we were, we seem to be so bad or whatever that God couldn't just kind of go, hey, you know what, I'll just let it slide. You know, what was the deal there that made all of that necessary? And then once Jesus is raised from the grave and ascends to the right hand of God, okay, what, then why, what are we supposed to do now? And what is the meaning of, of, of the gospel uh, here in the present time? Uh, so we're going to begin, we're going to do this in drill bit fashion. What that means is we're going to kind of circle the same theme and kind of go in a little bit deeper each time around, okay, until we hopefully get down to, to where the water is or the oil is. And we're going to do it by looking at what the, what the gospel is, okay, and why it matters. I want to begin with a little history here, all right? When, you go, when you're reading the book of Romans, you're reading not just a great theological treatise, but you're, you're reading something that's a correspondence between the Apostle Paul and the church at Rome. And the church at Rome was the result of Christian 
missionaries being there and, and uh, having converted some people, a local church begins. And then around the year 49, 49 AD, 1949, 49 AD, the Emperor Claudius gets rid of and banishes Jews from the city of Rome. And he does that, uh, the, the historian <clears throat> uh, Suetonius, he quotes him this way. He says that he does it because of strife over Christus, which is probably a misspelling of Christus, which is kind of a Latin form of, of Christ, right? So he says, basically, you've got this deal where the Jews are arguing with the Christians. The Christians, who are Jews, are arguing with the Jews, who are not Christians, over the meaning of Jesus. Then you have the Romans, and they're just sitting there trying, hey, we got, we got 40 gods that we worship. What's your problem? And then the Christians and the Jews are all saying, no, you guys are wrong. So there was turmoil popping up, but particularly it was um, strife over between the Jewish, just the Jews that were Jewish, and the Jewish Christians, okay? So Claudius comes in, he sends them out, and that's backed up, by the way, in Acts 18, I think it's chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 2. It's echoed there. So you got the historian, Roman historian here saying it happened, and in Acts you also see, it's a good reminder to us that this stuff actually has a historical context, and it matters. So in 49, all the Jews are banished, both Christians and just regular old Jews. They're gone. Well, what happens is, so the Romans then keep meeting as Christians among themselves. They start doing that, and different things start popping in. Rome, because you have a bunch of young Christians, they, uh, the culture starts getting to them, nipping at their heels, and they start taking on kind of unique Roman expressions of Christianity. So some of it's good, some of it's not so good. And then about 10 years after the Jews are banished, they come back to Rome, and now you have conflict. You have conflict between them because some people are saying, uh, you know, hey, you know, you know, you know, the Jews come back and say, hey, what are you guys doing? You're eating unclean food. You're doing this and you're doing that. And then the the uh, Roman Christians are going, yeah, but but we were told that we don't have to do those things. And so they start, you know, you kind of read between the lines. You can tell they're bickering with each other. But what Paul seems to be doing here is trying to help them in a very pluralistic age in which they live. Obviously, they're in Rome. They're used to worshiping numerous gods, not one. And as you continue to look through Paul's doctrine of sin and atonement and things that you see in Romans, he's trying to get them to understand, look, remember, guys, it isn't really about the meat you eat or not eat. Uh, it really is not about the, uh, you know, the more tangible, practical things of, of this life. You live your life out of the gospel. And the gospel begins with the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. And so what ends up happening is when we, for instance, we start seeing the gap between us and God being very narrow, kind of like, uh, you know, we're, we're really good people and God's pretty good too. He's just a little better than we are. And so he's here and, and, and we're here. Um, that's where the problems happen, that the gospel itself really stands on the fact that God is unfathomably righteous. Like to, to a level we can't even really comprehend, and that we are fundamentally, unfathomably unrighteous. So we are far more wicked than we think we are, and he is far more righteous than we typically think he is, and that the wider the gap gets, the more profound understanding of the gospel we get, because we understand, okay, there's a huge chasm here. How is that going to get bridged between the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man? And what he's saying is, well, you couldn't possibly bridge that gap, so God did it for you through the person and the work of Christ. So Paul writes to them now, 
And he says, I'm not offering you techniques on better communication for getting along with each other or cultivating some sort of higher emotional IQ or, or anything like that. He offers them the gospel, the good news that an unfathomably righteous God loved an unfathomably sinful humanity at the cost of his son, who was crucified and raised and alone is Lord of all. So he writes this to open the book of Romans, Romans 1, 8 to 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he's not writing to people who are bad people. He's saying, uh, you guys are, your faith is being talked about out there. People are recognizing God's working you. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under no obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you, who are in Rome. So he tells you there, that's what I'm, I'm here to do. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So for the Christian, the gospel is everything. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything every day. There is no Sabbath from the time that Jesus is everything. Tomorrow, he'll be everything. Today, he's everything. Ten minutes from now, he'll be everything. And by the time you go to your grave, he's still going to be everything. The gospel, as it's embodied in the person and work of Christ, that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Well, what in the world is it? Okay, well, it's, it needs some explanation, but if we're going to try and distill it, boil it down. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, put it this way. He says, you're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dare hope. I'm, I'm going to put it, add on to it a little bit. I would say something like this. If you said, all right, give me one sentence, Tim. It's hard to put in one sentence, but we'll try. The gospel is God's gift of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for the salvation of those who believe. Romans is going to highlight those two things, okay? So on this side, you got our unrighteousness, all right? You're not as good as you think you are. And even the good parts of you are the parts of God that are in you. They're not you. They're, they're, that's you bearing the divine image. You were created in the image of God. So there are going to be some things about you that are good. And those are reflections of God in you, not, not your own just good nature. And then over here, you've got the righteousness of God, which is so far beyond anything you can possibly fathom. He, he's so like, you know, Moses goes there and in the burning bushes, take off your shoes. The ground you're on is holy. If you're sharing any ground with God, it's holy. So take off your shoes. Uh, holiness uh, that's so powerful that when Isaiah realizes that he might be in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter six, he just falls down on his faith, face and he thinks he's going to die. Like holiness that uh, is so powerful and strong that you and your wildest dreams couldn't sit there and go, okay, if there is a God, let me picture how righteous he is. Whatever that is. Okay, it's way beyond that. The Bible's picture of the righteousness of God is off the chart. Okay, it's, it's, it's just incredible. So you got 
him and his righteousness off the chart. And then us over here, if you look at the testimony of Scripture, which is why Paul takes us on a, on, on a trip down memory lane after this, he will start back at, you know, really the creation of the world and then go on about how we kind of wrecked the world and why the need for Jesus exists. I mean, in case you don't remember, the first couple doesn't take them very long. They commit the first sin. The fall takes place. Uh, first murder comes at the hands of their children. After that, brother to brother. By the time you get to Genesis 6, so the world's created in Genesis chapter 1, by the time you get to chapter 6 of so the book of Genesis, God's ready to already destroy the earth by flood. And the reason, he says, is every thought of man was evil. Every thought. I mean, so there's no point in time where there's a noble thought out there where somebody's going, oh, you know, I really ought to be compassionate toward this person. No, it was evil. Head to toe, morning to night, evil. By chapter 6. So God tries again. Wipes out the earth by flood, saves Noah and his family. And then very quickly after, very quickly, things just start spinning out of control again. And you end up with things like Sodom and Gomorrah and all these other sinful things. Because when man isn't working in surrender to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or in our, our day and time, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as reflected in the person and work of Christ, or under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we can do some pretty stinking awful things. We can think pretty awful things. Our hearts can get pretty dark pretty fast. And so Paul says, yeah, God created the world for this. We made it this, which is something, a complete aberration, a dark place, a, 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 an evil place, really, that doesn't reflect what God had intended for it. And because of that, then, we had to, God had to create some bridge between us and himself so he could reconcile the world to himself. So Romans is going to highlight those two things, the righteousness of God, the unrighteousness of man. The gospel is the announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus and of that, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. That's where the power is. It's the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Romans is a, an intellectual book. It's a heady book, but it's an experiential book, too. Uh, Paul puts us on the let, let's spend a while thinking about your wickedness kind of rotisserie. And we just sit there for a while and roast over that on one side. And then when we're done... Uh, he takes another, you know, aspect of it, and he lets us kind of marinate in the fact that God is righteous beyond anything we can picture. And so what we've tried to do, I think, and I think this even in the Christian world, we've really tried to kind of close that gap, but instead of trying to do it through the sacrifice and work of Christ, we've kind of tried to do it through kind of a moralism that makes us think and kind of deludes us into thinking that we're actually pretty good people. We're not. We're not even close, in fact. And then that God is, um, through his, I guess I'll use the term proximity, that because of the intimacy with God, you can even hear it in our language, intimacy, intimacy, intimacy. We lose the transcendent aspect of God, which is that the only reason we have intimacy with God is because of Christ. But apart from Christ, man, there's a, we're not even in the same, you know, from a righteousness standpoint, we, we, we don't belong in the same building, on the same planet, or anything else with him. For while we were weak, Paul will say, here's where it goes, Romans 5. While we were still weak, not while we were strong and actually pretty good people, no, weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For once, 
will scarcely die for a righteous, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, what makes it amazing, what blows your mind about it, what makes it gracious, isn't, again, that we are so great or that, you know, we were one of those good people that someone might dare to die for. No. He says, he keeps going, nope, you're thoroughly wicked to the core. God is unbelievably righteous, high, lifted up, holier than you can possibly fathom. And that's what it means. While we were yet sinners, while this chasm still exists, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the gospel, the power of God to those who believe unto salvation. Undeserved favor with God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that then is supposed to become the truth that guides everything. It's the rudder on the ship. It's what controls. It's the bit in the horse's mouth. It's whatever analogy you want to use. That reality is what drives me. So I act in a godly way, not so I can earn my, the approval of the Father, I have the approval of the Father through the blood of His Son, so therefore I live a holy life. Um, I, don't, I don't try to uh, spend my energy trying to just kind of grit it out and be as righteous as I can. I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit of God that empowers me on a daily basis because of what Jesus did for me. I have access to the power of God through the gospel. You know, I think, um, you know, we, we, we need to reframe the way that we kind of see, see these things. We live righteously not so we can go to heaven but because thanks be to god we're going to heaven um it's super bowl sunday so let's use a, a, a football analogy um there's a juxtaposition between the true gospel and what i call the goal line gospel the goal line gospel looks like this you know what i did the best i, I try to live an upright and moral life and so I, I do realize i can't get the ball all the way to the end zone but i can get it i can get it to the goal line i just can't get it across and so jesus takes it from the one across the goal line. And without him, I couldn't get in the end zone. But with him, I can get it into the end zone, okay? Goal line, gospel. I basically do most of it. God kind of runs it across the goal line, okay? Romans views that as complete heresy. Romans would say, uh, not only did you not put the ball in the one, you're not even in the stadium. You're not even at the game. In fact, God created, he invented the game. He built the stadium. He played the game, won the game. And at best, we are tailgaters who show up after the game and celebrate what he did. That's it. But there's no point in time at which me and God are partners in my salvation. Hey, you know, or even this one. Here's another one. God takes it all the way to the one and I run it in. No. He did the whole thing. Now you respond in faith, but God plus your faith does not equal your salvation. God is the one who in Christ died on your behalf. And so maybe a better, if we're going to use football as an analogy is, we get to go to the parade and we acknowledge that he won. Later today, you're going to say things like this. If you're a Rams or Bengals fan, you're going to say, you're going to say oh man, we lost. We I mean, are you on the field playing the game? You are not. But you feel like you're part of the team because that you're a fan, you're invested, right? But don't make the mistake of thinking you played the Super Bowl. You did not, okay? The Super Bowl was played, and you're welcome to be a Bengals fan or a Rams fan or whatever other kind of fan you are. 
But when we think that we somehow made it happen ourselves, that's where, again, this gap gets closed and, and we, start mis- we start getting into kind of dangerous territory in terms of uh, our ability to understand and be driven by the gospel. It closes this gap through human effort, not through the blood and, and, and salvation that Jesus Christ offers us through his death and his resurrection. Jesus did not run the ball in from the goal line when we needed his help. Again, he invented the game. He invented the equipment, built the stadium, played and won the game. We are there observing that and watching, wow, did you see what he did? Christians who struggle to think of themselves, by the way, as worthy of being in relationship to God, this is a very important truth. Because we in ourselves are never worthy. None of us. None of us. And that's precisely why the gospel is good news. That's what Paul says in Romans 5, you know? Occasionally somebody will die for a pretty good guy. But that's not what happened. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It announces euangelion, gospel, means literally good news because it announces that God accepts us anyway by the blood of his son and that all we have to do is receive his offer in faith. To be sure, I want to be clear about this, and he'll make this clear in Romans, it's a faith that must by its nature always be accompanied by obedience. But justification reminds us that our standing with God is by grace and that thankfulness should be the hallmark uh, that we have in our dealings with him. I remember when I was a little kid, I was trying to understand this, one of my friends Mike Hope was preaching a sermon. This is 30 years ago, maybe more. Uh, but I still remember this illustration. He had a, a little boy come up on the stage with him, and he put his hand up here, and he asked the kid to try and jump and touch his hand. And, and the kid couldn't reach his hand. And so then he had, a, as I recall, there was a tall guy that came out, a really tall guy, and put his hand up there, like seven feet tall, like tall guy, put his hand up there, and Mike couldn't reach it. And then I remember him saying something to the effect of basically, yeah, he goes, but that, it's still not like that. It's like me trying to jump high enough to touch the moon. Like, it's one thing to feel like, again, it's the goal line gospel, right? Hey, you know, I almost got there. Couldn't quite, though. Uh, so God's like the trampoline in the dunk contest. And you know, he's, he's the one that I can, I can use to kind of boing and get high enough now that I can do it on myself, by myself. No. There is no dimension of time or universe in which you can justify yourself. Okay? The righteousness of God is what is required to justify you and me. And the beauty of it, as he says in the book of Romans, is he's like, he's like that's the power. Like, if it's, if it's simply, like, who can jump the highest, run the fastest, and you know what, hey, if you come up a little bit short, it's all right, God will help you with that. That's not very good news. That's, that means I'm almost God myself, is what it means, okay? So this, this gap and this chasm is to say, I in no way, shape, or form deserve the grace of God, and yet, guess what? While I was still here, he died for me, and as a result... That gap, there is no gap that's too wide, right? So that is the gospel. That's what drives us. That's what makes me get out of bed in the morning, makes me want to preach and not be ashamed of the gospel. It's what drove Paul. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ says, we bring nothing, nothing. God brings everything, including the love that wouldn't let us go. And through Jesus, justifies us, sanctifies us, and now empowers us. He himself is the gospel. All right? So then once justification happens, then we move on to this kind of doctrine called sanctification. That's how we become holy uh, in the sight of God and how faith then begins to transform us. But, but really what God is after is the reconciliation of himself with what was broken at the fall. So God himself, our relationship to him from that point forward, becomes the reward. It's not just heaven. It's what we experience now with God himself. It's God himself. John Piper wrote a little book called God is the Gospel, and uh, I found a lot of really helpful things in there. He asked two important questions. I'm going to ask you this morning to chew on this yourself. I've been chewing on them all week long. He says, the acid test of biblical... Oh, no, let me start a little earlier. He says, many are drawn to the gospel, get this, for the way it makes them feel about themselves. The acid test of biblical God-centered and faithfulness to the gospel is this. Here's the question. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of his son, he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? Does your happiness hang on seeing the cross of Christ as a witness to your worth? or as a way to enjoy God's worth forever? Is God's glory in Christ the foundation of your gladness? He's asking. I hadn't really considered that, to be honest with you. Is the reason that I love God because of how he makes me feel about myself? I kind of like the way he makes me feel about myself sometimes, but that may be part of the problem. Maybe I don't need to feel better about myself. Sometimes I need to feel worse about myself and recognize my need for God right? So his question there is, okay, what is it that really you're finding the joy of the gospel in? Is it, is it, is it in the fact that God makes you feel better about yourself, or does, is it that because he did what he did, I now can make a lot out of him, and I get to say, let me introduce you to my heavenly Father. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me introduce you to what it means to walk in the power of the Spirit. Let me introduce you to his people. Let me introduce you, like, you know, where, where, where the spotlight is heading in the right direction. Satan's subtle. I mean, he, he is good at what he does. And it's very easy for us to get to a point where it's like, oh, yeah. You know, I'm thankful for God because, man, he makes me feel good about myself. That's a self-esteem class you need. The gospel's different. And you do realize it now. Okay, I came in here maybe feeling like there was no hope. And now I realize that the very power of the one who created it all has not just bridged the chasm, but now lives in me. And so I can do a lot better than feeling better about myself. I can walk in the power of God. I can walk confident that, that nobody can take, separate me from the love of God anymore. That's in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I can keep doing, walking that kind of power instead of, hey, you know what? I need to go to church for a pick-me-up today because I'm having a bad week. Look, he'll cover your bad weeks too, but he starts with covering your eternity and works his way back from there. Do you understand the difference between these two things? All right, good. There's a few people. Good. Now, here, here's the second question. Think on this one. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven, 
with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Hmm. You can have everything else you wanted, but not Jesus. He wouldn't be there. Could you be satisfied with heaven? When I, I read that, I thought about two moments in Scripture. One was the temptation of Jesus when Satan takes him up, shows him all the kingdoms of the, of the world. says, all this can be yours if you'll just bow a knee to me. And Jesus says, no thanks. <laughs> he, he doesn't he doesn't go for it. It's a similar question. It's like, you can have everything else. I'll give you everything else. But you've got to swap out God for me. And Jesus doesn't succumb to it. The other one was Job. The book of Job came to mind. And Job uh, gets missed all the time, the, the, the point of Job. Uh, most people think, hey, Job is a manual on how to deal with suffering. No, it's not. It can help you in that way. But the point of Job, the vision of Job, is not about, uh, hey, you know, why, why do people suffer in the world? The central point of Job is the question that Satan asked God in the beginning of the book. And it's this, does Job serve God for nothing? It's his way of saying, you know, Lord, I know you're bragging on Job, and Job is a very faithful guy, but he's that way because you make his life awesome. You've scratched his back, so now he's scratching yours. But you take all that away, and we'll see how your man Job does. And so then we come back to this one. What about heaven? Is it really heaven I'm after? Or is it Job's life? Does Tim serve God for nothing? What, 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 if, what, if, what if you took away all of his blessings? Or exchange them for something terrible. Would he still do it? Would he still preach the gospel? What about you? Would you want to be in heaven if you got everything your heart desired except Jesus wasn't there? See, what he's saying here about the gospel is that he himself is the gift. He's, he's heaven. Like, your relationship to him, your ability to eternally be in relationship to your heavenly father with the guilt of your sin removed, with the power of the Holy Spirit filling your heart. Okay, that is really, that's the crescendo. And yes, there's an eternity. And yes, there's a heaven that's better than what we experience here on this earth. But for a person, it's, re it's reasonable to ask if a person who doesn't find much use for God in the present will be very happy when that's what they're left with eternally. So to me, the gospel asks me some questions that, that I need to think through. I need to answer. I need to process. I need to humble myself before God and say, God, I need you to shine the light of your truth inside my heart and see where I would land with that. Let me know, Father, if, if I'm actually preaching the gospel or if I'm ashamed of the gospel, or if I'm preaching the goal line gospel, or if I'm whatever, or am I, am, I, am I understanding what you've done for me in Jesus? And am I understanding that 
the, the whole magic of it is in, in what you did for me in the person and work of Christ, which was necessary because of who I am. One of the reasons Paul keeps going down his own personal history as often as he does to other people is because I, think it's, I don't think it's just powerful for them. I think he needs to do it. I think he, he continues to, that's why he goes, I was the chief of sinners. I used to persecute the church. I used to do this. And remembering those things, not, not carrying with you the shame, the, the worldly shame of that, but the reminder, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit about what you used to be allows you to continue to experience the gospel in its perpetuity. Instead of swaggering around the throne room of God, it puts you on your face, which is where we should be. It's the humility that goes with the gospel to say, no, I'm not going to, you know, uh, sashay in there and look at, you know, God's lucky to have me in his army, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I mean, Paul says here in Romans 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Um, we live in a world, unfortunately, in which courage to speak and courage to live in a way that shows our belief to be true is in short supply. We have begun to invent new ways of being ashamed. We do it by coming up with strange uh, ways of allegedly preaching, you know, the gospel by not using words. Um, Ed Stetzer says, he goes, yeah, that's like saying feed the poor without using food. The gospel needs to be spoken. And in the ministry of Jesus, he does live it out, but he also speaks it. Speak it, live it. Speak it, live it. Nobody's going to come to Christ through your osmosis. And your life, frankly, isn't as good as you think it is. So what they need to hear is the truth so that when you let them down, which you will, that doesn't mean there's no God. That demonstrates your need for God is what it does. And thank God that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly, right? So that it's still not, so I'm going to get up and I'm going to try to continue to walk out the gospel. But my frailty, my sinfulness really is a better illustration of the gospel than, than me walking around and trying to be uh, Jesus incarnate to you so that if I do something or make a mistake or I sin or my attitude's off one day, now you're an atheist because I convinced you that looking at my life is going to somehow lead you to the Lord. Preach the gospel. Tell them. Tell them, hey, you know what? Here's where I was. Here's what God did with me. But even that's not the gospel. The life change in me is not the gospel. The gospel is what God has done in Jesus for all. My life is a testimony and a witness to that. And so as a Christian, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it with my life. I'm going to say it with my words. Uh, I'm going to try to do it with my, my actions. I'm going to try and serve people the way Jesus served them. I'm going to try to repent when I need to repent. I'm going to confess when I need to confess. Uh, I'm gonna, but, but I'm not going to stop telling people about what God has done through the person and work of Jesus just because somebody might be upset by it or because I'm afraid I might hurt their feelings about it or whatever. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is in Rome, for goodness sake, right? Keep in mind, oh, I don't know, maybe four years after he writes this, Paul gets beheaded in Rome. So the man paid the price for not being ashamed. And yet many of us, we're afraid somebody will put a 
angry emoji on our Facebook page. Now, I'm not saying go out and be a jerk about it, because again, the point is to draw attention to yourself. The, the reason Paul paints in light and dark colors here is to draw attention to the magnificence of God. And so I don't think any time that we draw attention to the glory of God, we should ever be ashamed. And I think we can bask in the protection of God and go forward knowing that he's going to protect us no matter what we do, as long as we're pointing that, the, the, the glory to him. Um, and so when he talks to us about being blessed for continuing to do the gospel, now he does say, you're going to likely suffer for it. And so we should believe him. We should believe him, just like we believe all the stuff about love. We should, we should believe what he says to us about suffering. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, anyone can believe in God. What it means to be a Christian is to trust him when he speaks, which does not require a leap of faith or a crucifixion of the intellect. It requires a crucifixion of pride because no one is more trustworthy than God. It's the willingness to say, God, I believe you, you have the words of life. I believe that you speak the truth, and so I'm going to make the decision to believe you because I think my mind is not good enough. I don't think my hands are clean enough. I don't think my feet are steady enough. I think you've got it all. And so I'm going to choose to believe what you say. And then I'm going to find ways to be unashamed of the gospel. I'm going to walk forward in the power and strength of your spirit. And I'm going to be willing to be bold because it's good news, not bad news. Famous magician and outspoken atheist, Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller fame, he had a friend give him a Bible as a gift. So at first he was not thrilled. But rather than be offended by it, he eventually recognized it for the gesture that it was. And, but here, so here's what he said. Remember, this guy, he's a, he's a very aggressive atheist too. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? He goes, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, we hold the greatest news this world will ever know. That an unfathomably righteous God loves each person more than they can dream and has reconciled us to himself in Jesus. And so I will not be a Jonah who withholds the truth from people I think don't deserve it. Nor am I going to be an embarrassed uh, guy who walks around all the time worried that I could uh, that, that, you know, as though I think what I'm carrying around with me is bad news for people. God says, no, this is good news. In fact, it's not good is like not a big enough word. It's mind-blowing, life-changing, eternity-shaking, altering truth. And so we, sisters and brothers, are blessed with the, the words of God to speak into us and remind me that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And he died for you. And he died for your friends. All the people who are going to be getting plastered around you at Super Bowl parties today, he died for them too. And all the people, you know, all, all of the people that, uh, you know, you're going to be around and, and witness today. And just remember too, by the way, if you ever get too high and mighty about it, many, many, many people in this church were in the same camp two or three years ago. And God got a hold of them and turned their entire life around. And that chasm got... So, let's remember that and walk forward in humility. 
Right now we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and uh, as we do, we're going to take the bread and the cup. We do this here every week. Uh, you don't, you're not obligated to take it. If you showed up here and you have no idea what it is, that's okay. But let me explain it to you briefly. And if you didn't get the elements when you walk in, just put your hand in the air, and, and we'll have an usher bring it to you if you'd like some, okay? So we got some over here, Jim. Uh, back row, over here front and side. Middle, everywhere. Um, so we do this every week at New Vintage, as the early church did. And we do it as a way of remembering everything that God did for us in Christ. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood. And so as we reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, we remember the gospel. Gospel that highlights the righteousness of God and how he bridged the chasm between he and us. Hey, Jimmy, one more right here. There's an 11-year-old missing her supplies. <laughs> All right. So as we do it today, let's do some thinking about the sheer compassion of God. That one so righteous would reach out to some to, to us so sinful. And what that means. And to understand the magnitude of the grace of God as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, with bread and cup now, uh, we say we love you, Lord. We say we're committed to you. As we think about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and how he continues to empower us every day, our breath is taken away. Uh, Father, keep us free from the goal line mentality. Help us to remember that everything we are, I mean, every, every time we take a step, we're putting a foot on the earth you created. Uh, we, every time we pray, we're praying to you. Every word we speak, we speak because you put air in our lungs. That we are totally and completely living by grace every moment. So, Father, we thank you for that. We honor you. We thank you for the book of Romans and how it recenters us on the gospel of which we are not ashamed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.